This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. To capture our collective imagination today, I've invited a creative musician, producer, actor, accidental author, and an occasional beatboxer to join me. He's a multi-instrumentalist who defines himself as an everyday outlier. Coming up is my conversation with a guy who knows his way around a guitar, a cello, and vocals. In short, he is music in human form. Stay tuned for John Pointer. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Thanks for having me, Pat. I'm glad to be here. It's fantastic. And I got to tell people just right away in context that one of the reasons I invited you is that I loved seeing and discovering beatbox through you. You are our first beatboxer on this show. Oh, fantastic. Yes, which means we don't know anything about it. And I would love to learn a little bit and hear a little bit if this forum works for that. I think it's a pretty intriguing thing because... When you do it in concert, you almost have to demonstrate it for them to realize this isn't some offstage band playing. Yeah, well, I think with the advent of the YouTube age, of course, there are so many incredible beatboxers. I actually consider myself a musician who knows how to beatbox. I don't actually consider myself a beatboxer per se, because man, if you look up some of the guys that are out there working today, it's like that thing where technology just doubles every, what, five years or something, but musical skills and levels of attainment seem to do the same thing. But yeah, I started as a Suzuki kid and that's the mother tongue approach. So you learn music as a language while you're actually learning to speak. So that was just always the way I approached things. I started on cello and piano and that was at the age of like five. And then at about eight, I started studying drums and percussion. And one of the ways to describe the Suzuki method is if you can sing it, you can play it. So like, if you know how to sing, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. You can figure that out on any instrument. At that point, it's just a technical question. You can also play ABCs because it's the same song. Right. A couple of others too. But yeah, so since it was always very verbal to me, beatboxing, I always describe it as a language. And of course, I get to travel all over the place with groups like the House Jacks. One of our things is, or their things, I actually haven't been in that group for a while, but still love them dearly and am happy to go in as a sub when they need me. Anytime I would do a beatboxing class, which always happens at these festivals where we go, I like to describe it as just a language. So in English, you might say drum. In Italian or Spanish, it's going to be bateria. There are a million different ways to say drum, 
but in beatbox it's but it's a technical thing because I know what drums are supposed to sound like because I play drums. And so then it's just figuring out, okay, how do I make a side stick? Or that's more of a rim shot and a side stick would be like a or all these different snares. And that's one of the routines that I came up with 20 years ago. I did a Chili's commercial and suddenly I was known in the beatboxing world, even though I didn't consider myself then a beatboxer and I don't really consider myself a beatboxer even today. Again, it's more of like a musician who can beatbox or like a drummer trapped in a guitarist and cellist's body. That's kind of how I think of myself. Well, but it is a skill set in order to support the other singers and also to maintain the various instruments that you're replicating. This takes some stamina, I would imagine. Yeah, and it comes down to breath control and spit control, really. <laughs> but oftentimes I'll kind of take people through it from a language, a linguistic perspective, and it's like five steps from the word Mississippi to So if you say Mississippi, 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 and then you just change the M to a B, and then you have Mississippi, 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 and then you alternate Bs and Ks, now you have Mississippi, 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 and then you just whisper, and it goes to Mississippi, 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 and then you change the S's to T's, and it's and you're pretty close to beatboxing at that point. And then it's just tuning in the sound. So is obviously a level away from. Volume wise, you mean? Yeah, and precision and a crisp sound. I can't really hear this microphone. So one of the other things that I think of the, the microphone and the sound system, that's actually my instrument, even though acapella is supposed to be without instruments. The sound system itself, I know that when I hit it with a plosive like a B or a D, I can hear how the subwoofers react to it. And then I actually tune whether I'm going to put extra breath behind it to give it a little bit more sustain or if I just need to like tap it at the front and then the subwoofer will do the rest of the work for me. But yeah, it's just tightening in those techniques and understanding the instrument you're playing, which is really the sound system at that point. That's interesting. Yeah. So not only is it amplifying your voice by your distance from the microphone and your knowing what's happening with those speakers, you are actually cheating. What acapella feels like some kind of Amish thing, but here you come trotting in with your big electronic support. Yeah. And man, let me tell you, there's nothing more fun than getting on a 150,000 watt sound system and going and just like rattling the whole arena or hitting one of those kind of throat singing sounds and getting that to like make parts of the rafters rattle with a lot of those low notes. It's just using your voice in a way that people don't typically hear in everyday speech. You're also exploring, I imagine, your head cavity as a way of how it comes out of your mouth, like how much to release at what time and how much to open your mouth. Yeah, absolutely. Beatboxing is just like anything. Your voice sounds different than my voice. And some people are really good at imitating. So someone could listen to me and imitate my voice or could listen to you like Rich Little is a good example from when I was a kid. But it all has to do with the resonating cavities that you are working with because every head is different. 
well, just like switching cellos or switching guitars, the vocal apparatus you're working with is going to be different from one person to the next. And then it's also like what you want to do, what you're willing to do. For instance, I'm a singer, so I still have to be able to hit the notes. And a lot of times when you hear really excellent beatboxers who are just doing insane things, they sound like you're talking to a stack of sandpaper because their throat is just like, because ah, ah, they're really stressing out the vocal cords. Well, I can't go that far because I still have to be able to sing clearly when I do regular straight vocals. But yeah, every head is a different instrument, I guess you could say. I was on Spotify listening to your schizophonic album from 2007, and there's a thing called the Holy Trinity of Rhythm where you do some of the work and you're actually defining the instruments as you play them. It, it was pretty cool. It was just a good way to go, oh, I get it, okay, that's what that is. There are more than one song, there are parts to that, right? Mm -hmm. That's a routine that I came up with because I did that Chili's commercial in 2003, I guess. And then suddenly was a known entity and some folks invited me up to the beatbox convention in New York. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I'll go. And then I'm on the plane and I realize, ooh, I just nabbed this really sweet gig and I can beatbox, but I'm not really a beatboxer and I don't have any routines that are my own, like my signature. What people may or may not realize is that a lot of times when you see a beatboxer and people send around YouTube videos of someone on America's Got Talent or Britain's Got Talent, whatever, there are some beatboxing standards, almost like Fly Me to the Moon. Well, Kenny Muhammad was like huge influence on me. And he had this routine called the wind technique. And that's basically the one that you see people do on TV. It's the one that's like, and etc. And so if you ever hear somebody doing that, that's actually Kenny Muhammad's bit. He created it and everybody else just bit it. And so as I was on the plane, I realized, oh no, like I'm about ready to land in the middle of all these guys that made the American standard beatbox repertoire. And all I can do is mimic them. This is a challenge. And I was on the plane flying to New York when I had that sort of like moment of mortification. And then it was like, okay, well, I better come up with something and it's got to be good enough for those guys to think it's cool. And so then my dad was a physicist and he always would say, well, F equals MA is a good place to start. So like basic equation, what do people do? And then just do the thing they don't do. Like figure that out. See where the missing part is. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized, wow, all these guys do these amazing routines where they're like singing and beatboxing and it's just a wow moment, but nobody is describing what they're doing. So I just decided that my bit would be self-referential. Like I'm explaining to you what you're hearing. And it does a couple of things. There's sort of the psychoacoustic thing, but there's also a little bit of hypnosis or suggestion where once I tell you what you're supposed to be hearing, it sounds more like that. So it actually works on two levels. Of course, 
nobody really wants to get that deep into beatboxing. It's just a cool routine. But that was my realization was, okay, everybody does these things, but nobody does a routine talking about how everybody does these things. <laughs> so that's where the Holy Trinity of Rhythm came from. And that's the bit. And there's an incredible drummer, huge influence, friend of mine named J.J. Johnson, who's been around Austin for a long time and just phenomenal musician, sweetheart of a guy. And one time he just made this offhanded comment, probably like 1998 or 99. And he said, you know, it was in reference to like drummers that have humongous drum kits because you've got like 16 cymbals and 24 toms and some rototoms and everything else and double bass and he just said man all you need is the holy trinity of rhythm your kick your snare and your hi-hat if you can't do it with that then you got to go home and practice and that really stuck in my head as a drummer and i really took that to heart even just on instruments and then i realized oh that's a great place to start because i can say kick snare hi-hat and then I can do kick snare and hi-hat so that's what it starts out with is the doesn't want to human beatbox the holy trinity rhythm kick snare hi-hat kick snare hi-hat and that's kind of like the James Brown funky drummer like which happened to fit well with the words I needed to fit in there. So kick, snare, hi-hat. Kick, snare, hi-hat. And it's kind of a cool thing because there's some psychoacoustics going on too where I'm not even saying the second K in the kick, but you're hearing it because if I say kick, snare, hi-hat, you're going to hear kick snare high hat kick snare high hat so i'm only saying kick snare high hat and i'm just putting in the other sounds so you still think you're hearing it kenny muhammad does a great one where he kind of focuses your attention on just the hi hat where he's going think you're hearing the but you're not he's not doing that anymore you just kind of hear it as a suggestion so there's all this really cool psychoacoustic stuff which I also then incorporated into that solo show you were talking about where when I hit the stage I'm going to get the sound engineer to make the about equal to the thump from my foot hitting the stomp box that I'm standing on so sometimes it's just like I don't even know how that happened because I thought he was beatboxing it, but then there's a kick doing it, and it's a little bit like a shell game with the sound. Well, I will say what they can't see that I can because I can visually see you is that you were indicating with your finger when that hi-hat was going, and you kept doing that when the sound was gone, and that was making me feel like I was seeing the instrument here hit it. So to see it deconstructed, and again, the listener may just think you've got some kind of sampling board in front of you, but I assure you, John is doing everything vocally and instrumentally from his mouth. 
And some might even say obnoxiously. <laughs> well, listen, this is not your only talent, but it is an interesting one and certainly one that has allowed you to complement many groups. I know that you've been in lots of acapella groups. In a way, having a toolkit like that and being a singer and being a cellist and being a guitarist makes you a avid collaborator, I would guess. So I love pushing my own boundaries just to see what will happen when I get into a flow state and I'm just not even paying attention anymore. Like, for instance, when I was doing that bit, I was not really aware that I was still doing the thing with my hand, but that's because as a drummer, it would make sense to be doing that. So my hands are just making that happen as if I'm drumming, but there's also that pantomime thing that you'll see beatboxers do. This kind of influences you, but... So I like pushing my own boundaries and seeing what comes out when I'm just in that flow state and not really paying attention. But I also really love just kind of subsuming myself to a collaborative effort where I can let that flow state sort of either support somebody else or kind of trickle through them or blend with whatever they're doing. So it's like the delta of a river going into the ocean and there's just these really cool swirls that happen when you get two people that are kind of working in a flow state together. It's just this incredible, these incredible little eddies and and vortices that happen. And then I also just love stretching out and creating a sound bed for somebody else who's really only doing maybe one thing, but they're doing it really beautifully. And then I'm there creating all of the other stuff around them where I might be the ocean and they're the delta of the river coming in and or the mouth of the river hitting the sea. But yeah, that was a lot of fun to do all the vocal stuff but of course, I got my degree in cello performance and composition and then went out and also play guitar. And that's where I, most people have probably heard me as a guitarist or a vocalist or beatboxer. But my background is actually in cello and piano and drums. Can I just pause and have you tell me a little bit about the cello? Because I did talk to a cellist on the show months ago, Jen Cornell, and just how powerful the cello is for almost being like the human voice, like having an emotional range that's different than other instruments. So tell me a little bit about it, the magic of how the cello can take us places. Well, my personal opinion is, and so therefore I think it's true, because these days opinions are truth, right? <laughs> but at some point I realized that the reason I resonate so much with a cello isn't just that I grew up doing it. It's that it is the instrument that's closest in size to the human body. It's the closest in shape to a human body. It's the closest in range to a human voice. So like a cello can hit a low C and that's like a decent bass. The only bass that could sing below that would be like a, you know, a real Russian bass, which I've had the incredible opportunity to hear like right in front of me and they can just go so low. It's amazing. But for most voices, that low C on a cello is going to be about the bottom of the typical vocal range for a low singing male voice, like a nice low country voice would might be able to hit that low C. It's a little bit lower than a guitar, but then you get up to the top and it can sing like the most beautiful soprano also, but it just has that extra resonance that comes from the body, which is exactly how human bodies work. Cause you think you're hearing a person's voice, but you're actually hearing their chest vibrate the way you project is you focus things through so it will carry, but it's not just the sound you're making with your 
larynx and the vowels and the formants and all the things you're doing with your head, it's literally like your chest resonating, your mask of your face is resonating, just like any surface that would create sound. This is, kind of goes back to the beatboxing thing, but there are seven different elements to any human, like I'm using seven different specific parts right now just to speak. And it starts kind of down at the diaphragm and it comes all the way up through the, the teeth and the lips, but it includes the sinuses, the back of your tongue, the front of your tongue, your larynx. There's a, people call them different things, but it's almost like a second set of vocal folds above your larynx where that throat singing thing that I'm actually singing a, I'm singing that note but the one that comes out below it is actually the tissue above my vocal cords vibrating at half speed. So that's why it kind of gets that rattly sound. You learn to train your muscles to get that part to vibrate specifically along with your throat. And I think not to keep going back to beatboxing, but it's sort of like any instrument works this way. I don't know whether experimenting with instruments to kind of push their boundaries and see what else can you do with this led me to beatboxing or if beatboxing fed back and led me to do more of that with instruments but there's always been that sense of like okay well i see that you can play it that way but what if you played it this way or like how else could you play it, it kind of goes back to that thing on the plane okay well everybody else is doing this what else can you do with that that's always been my background i think I love that moment on the plane for many reasons, but all artists get a place where they go, oh, wait a minute, I want to be known for my own original voice. There is a moment where you literally have to go out and f explore the boundaries of who are you and what do you have to say. Mario Andretti, the race driver says, if things seem under control, you're not going fast enough. You somehow have to step out into the unknown, which again, as small as that moment is, the pressure was completely inflated on you because you realized, oh, I'm walking into a place where everybody knows all this. I now have to bring my own point of view to it. I've always been aware that a lot of people think of me as a creative, but really I'm just a synthesizer. I take in all the input and I just combine it in a way that maybe you haven't heard before. But there are other times when I'll synthesize something that sounds just like something you've heard before. So it's that interesting balance between derivative and creative, and it's just all in how you synthesize things, I think. I don't know that there's much left truly unique and creative. Was it Euripides that said there are only seven plots, basically? Yeah, but the point is, I think you're identifying patterns and you're still approaching things or interpreting things. I know that your the viral sensation of the video you did, which was Cashmere, you were playing a Led Zeppelin tune and you were using your stomp box and your guitar is absolutely worth a visit to YouTube if people know who you are, because it's just super great to see one person taking it on and with such fervor. Well, first of all, I love that tune. I've always loved that tune. Who doesn't like Cashmere? If you don't like Cashmere, stop listening now and go find a different podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, no, keep listening, keep subscribing, like and share. <laughs> well, and that's one where I think one of the things I love about it is that it's in both three and four at the same time. The instruments are in one and one, two, three. 
So if I do it like that, you can hear it very clearly. So I'm still doing the the instruments in three, but you've got the. Oh man, this floor sounds great. I'm sure the microphone's not picking it up. But so you have that tension of the four versus three. And it's just a great rock tune and great players. And then with that tune, one of the things I love about performing it is that it's like me pushing myself about to the limit of anything I can actually accomplish. And then it opens up to the audience to sing their own part because like I've got everything and now I want the audience to play the part of the Egyptian Philharmonic. So I teach them that in the middle of the song. And as a performer, you understand that there are bits that you do. And so every time you see me do that, you'll find some honest and sincere version of the same thing where I'll get to the part where everybody's supposed to go and they miss it because I haven't really cued them to do it. And then I chide them about it and I'm still playing and I'm kind of like vamping and I'm like, okay, so here we go now. And then everybody comes in and does it and we're off to the races and we do the rest of the song. It kind of starts out as this, I don't want to say selfish, but like one man epicenter. And the thing I really love about that one is that it allows me to bring the entire audience into it in a really fun way where they're not just taking it in, but now they're actually adding to it. And I think that's one of my favorite things about performing is when you're bringing everybody into one space, people can kind of let go of their egos. They can just join the crowd and have a good time and just be there and do something fun. Yeah, and that bond, that moment where it succeeds for them and they realize they are a part of a success is quite a, a magical thing in performance as opposed to being performative and you doing it and them clapping for you. Once they test the water and then you give them a little education and they join the band essentially in that song, you see an audience come together from different walks of life, from different jobs, from different schools. Suddenly an audience has this sort of, it's an organic thing. You feel that unity come together, which you really only get in theater and music you don't get it at a football game because you get two sides of the stadium ooing and aahing against each other. But in that kind of a thing, it's really true sense of unity that you search for. Yeah, I have a lot of theories and I'll share one with you and we'll see if it flies. But I often think about mirror neurons and how we learn. For anybody that hasn't really heard of it, you can look it up. But the bottom line is if you were to scan my brain as I watched you, Pat, drink a glass of water, there are parts of my brain that are firing as if I'm drinking that glass of water. And I think that's why it's so important to watch someone do something slowly because then you're actually training that part of your brain to do it. And then you try to connect that part of your brain that just did it with the part of your body that has yet to do it. And so I actually think that's one of the incredible things about performance and it can be two teams playing each other because you're watching it but there's actually a part of you that's running down the field as you watch that guy just like take off and that's why it feels so good and you're like oh it's like you actually got tackled a little bit same thing with 
music, same thing with magic, I think, especially because basically to me, magic is when your mirror neurons are firing and you can kind of keep up with everything. And then they do something that you just, your brain can't do that. And that's, it's that short circuit that creates that elation and the mystery. The same thing with comedy. When you twist a thing in a way that they didn't see it coming because their brain doesn't work that way. And they're kind of like tracking along. They're like, oh, it's storytelling. Ah, you know, and then <laughs> you take that left turn and it surprises us and it delights us because we would never have thought of that. And it's hilarious. And it's that same thing. I think that's really, in some ways, one of the most important jobs of a performer is to take people along and then every once in a while kick it into a gear that they just, not intentionally, but kick it into a gear that people can't fathom. And that's when it feels magical. Yeah, let's say magic specifically. Sometimes it creates this sense of wonder or this childlike euphoria of confusion, but sometimes it frustrates an adult where they get mad. You don't know what that response can be. And in comedy, it's frequently that sort of explosive sense of laughter. And the more, I would say, jaded or educated somebody gets, sometimes they literally frustrate the laugh because they don't want to give it up. I see it all the time in different faces in the crowd. And sometimes it's like, you got to let it go or you're going to implode, right? It's like holding in gas. Oh man. Yeah. And it's also, there was a phase in my life where I was frustrated because I spent all this time learning to do all this stuff and rah, 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 and like, right. And you thought they weren't appreciating all the effort. Yeah. And I just was, I don't know, I was kind of being a jerk about it, I suppose, because you do a show like that and then people come up and there are two or three natural responses that everyone has and they pick from the responses they know because nobody's going to come up and invent a brand new response for you i mean i wouldn't even do it if somebody did something amazingly i'd be like wow that was amazing that's not something i made up it's like honest it's sincere so oftentimes when i've finished doing this show where i sound like four or five people and i also design the show probably like you design a play or a comedy set where there's a flow where you bring the audience up and down and now you give them this emotion and then you take them there and, or just DJs are excellent at that. You're intentionally creating a trip or a journey for people emotionally. And when they're sort of in the midst of like, wow, I mean, that was such a broad, in my particular case, it's intended to be like, wow, how did he even do that? And there was this period of time where I just, Oh, I wish I could go back and find anybody who ever said, how did you learn to do that in that era? Oh, and apologize to them? Yeah, because my response would always be to mirror their enthusiasm and say, I don't know, probably the 30 years of practice. And nobody wants to hear that. They just want to hear, I don't know, you know, I just love it and I didn't stop. Because then it's the sort of being generous with it as opposed to like, what do you mean, how did I learn to do this? I just learned. <laughs> I devoted my entire life to it and then I just did it for you and you wonder how I, what? <laughs> and like, oh. Right. Well, but you made a good point when you mentioned the mirror neurons. I'm tying this back to what you said earlier about beatboxers on YouTube and all of that. Because we have this visual learning we have this place we can go to Google, go to YouTube. That also explains the acceleration of their 
understanding things is because they're visually seeing what's possible. So the year the first guy broke the four-minute mile in the Olympics, the following year, everybody was running a four-minute mile because they knew it was possible. That became a part of the acceleration. So it really is accelerating a lot of young people's ability to learn things that they wouldn't have normally taken in. And it's incredible, too, because there was a phase in my life where I was just like really cranky because I just felt, well, because artists, man, our value to society and our value to people is very hard to quantify. And so oftentimes we have a wall full of awards and cannot pay our electric bill. And then there's the sort of false parallel of the free market, like, oh, well, you're just not good enough. People don't know you. And it's like, no, I think also we just don't know how to value people. And that was, I mean, not to take it way off in that direction, but that was where patronism was such a crazy, it's the simplicity after the complexity. So let me explain, though, to people what that means. You founded patronism.com, which was a way to fund your music development with fans and folks who believed in you as a musician who wanted to be on the journey. Um, is that a fair way to say it? Yes, that's a really good way to say it. Many people today know of Patreon. And basically, I was in that generation of artists who really got ground up in the transition from the old way of doing it to the new way of doing it. Because 1997, Napster came out and just completely reordered how record labels worked. And of course, I grew up in an era where you see a million faces and you rock them all, right? And the record label puts you out there to do that. And they put their millions of dollars into marketing you because again, people don't know what they like, but they like what they know. So if you play it enough, they like it. Yeah, but they also own your product for the most part. Oh yeah, absolutely. You get pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Ugh. And if you're not business savvy, then you get a manager that can fleece you like TLC. And uh, it's just so many heartbreaking stories from those days. And I, ugh. anyway, so as soon as Napster came out, though, I looked at it and I thought, huh, well, now I have a free distribution network. And then skip forward. Then I realized it was a distributed network, which is how they were able to take it down. It wasn't just peer to peer. I could tell people are sharing me in Dallas, people are sharing me in Chicago, people are sharing me in San Francisco, and so I would go where people knew me. And then I realized, oh, I can actually use this to push market. So and say to the, here's my nationwide email list, hey, if I'm not in Boise, if you're in Boise, like just share my stuff to Napster because poverty isn't really the enemy of the artist, obscurity is. And you can say that again. And I don't remember who said that. I wish I could credit it. I did not come up with it, but it's so true. Obscurity is the biggest challenge for everybody, even in today's world where you could get on YouTube. But I mean, what, we're uploading 500 hours of video to YouTube every second. So it's like looking for a needle in a haystack at the bottom of a chute where they just keep adding hay faster than you can even count. Right, and needles, by the way. Oh yeah, great needles, incredible needles. But yeah, the punchline is that, so that was 1997 and then I spent the next decade trying to figure out, okay, well, if music is free to listen to, but it's still really expensive to get good at it and it's expensive to make, you can't kickstart a motorcycle down the highway. You have to have an engine 
And fast forward, I looked at the Obama fundraising model and realized, oh, I'm just giving him money every month to go do his job. And I thought, huh, I wonder if people would do that just for artists. And so I programmed a really basic version of it. And the first night I launched it, 50% of the crowd stayed for two and a half hours after the show trying to sign up. And I thought, whoa, I really misjudged this. It's not, I can't eat. It's like, these people have never been invited to make a real tangible difference, like to ensure that I can keep doing this thing they love. And so that was 2009. And then I bought patronism.com, started building it. But the big lesson was I didn't know how to work venture capital. And so I had the thing running. A guy quit his job at Accenture and programmed the thing and lived on his own savings for like 10 months while I went out and tried to raise the funds. But I just didn't know how to do it. I kept showing people this incredible hockey stick. But the only thing I could come up with was I've figured out how to monetize people's feelings. And when you're next to, well, we've got a self-heating can bottom that we already have 500,000 pre-orders from the U.S. military, and you give somebody else, they're like, I can actually monetize how people feel. They're going to go for the self-heating can bottom almost every time. They're like, well, I understand that. But monetizing how I feel in 2009, that was just hard to do. And was that pre-Kickstarter? So Kickstarter, I actually kickstarted before Kickstarter was Kickstarter, but then Kickstarter became a platform. And I just looked at the NPR model and I was like, oh, I could probably do that. Like 2003. And then Kickstarter started doing it. But then what people run into is creatives are terrible at marketing, typically. And then you also have to have a whole other expertise in donor fatigue. And that was the big problem with Kickstarter is that you could kickstart something and let's say you get your record funded. I actually kickstarted my post to do the book about Benny. You call yourself an accidental author. So let's just flip so they know what we're talking about and who Benny is. So tell them a little bit about, the, what's the title of the book? It's called Yesterday Was Weird. Yesterday Was Weird. And top line is I was that artist who always had his gleaming white boxer with him. And he was allowed on every stage where I played. And if you hired me to come do a show, they just knew that he was part of the show and he was going to be there with me. So he gained a ton of fans because people love dogs because they're just not jerks ever. <laughs> and then he got sick and then everybody was worried about him. And one of the venues in town, one, two, one bar actually cleared out their schedule and they were like, we're going to do the benefit. Cause I mean, you know, suddenly I was $5,000 in vet bills and for a working musician, that's, that's not nothing. And so they did the benefit and they're like, we're going to make sure that Benny can get whatever medical care he needs. Fast forward, it was cancer and he couldn't fight it. And so I had to put him down, but I, I didn't know how to tell people. And I wasn't really thinking and I was just sobbing because I'd <laughs> They had just taken him away. I had him euthanized in our house so that he could just be comfortable in his own bed. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to post about it on my own page. And so I actually just put up a picture and I just put the dates, his birth date and today's date. And I just said, I love you so much. And it was a picture of him in front of the I love you so much sign. 
which is an iconic Austin right there, Joe's uh, coffee shop. But the book itself helped you process your own grief. And now as a book that people can purchase is something to deal with the loss of a pet. It's transferable to any kind of grief. Yeah. And it was just insane because it was almost a mildly dissociative state where I was in so much pain. I just kind of stumbled over to his Facebook page and told it from his perspective. And I didn't plan anything. I just started typing. And I knew that people would need to know how I had come to this decision because the last they'd heard from me was like two weeks prior and and maybe he was still going to be okay. And so to like surprise people with, oh, he's not okay. I just didn't know how to handle that. And so Benny, in quotation marks, or Benny, for real, because he's definitely a part of me, just started typing, yesterday was weird. I couldn't get myself out of bed. And the guy I live with tried to lift me up, but my legs wouldn't cooperate. And he said, that's okay, buddy. I got you covered. And he carried me downstairs and out the front door. That was so nice of him. And it was like, that's how a dog is. It's like, ugh, oh, I don't feel too well. Oh, I love you so much. Jeez, ugh, you're so nice. Ugh, I don't, my legs aren't working. I don't think they have that layer of mortal terror, their own like self-aware, aware of their own mortality. And so I was just kind of living in that space. Like, I don't know that I'm dying. I just know I feel weird and I love this guy. And so 1,800 words later, it was one cathartic blurt. And I closed the computer and just sobbed for the rest of the day. And then it was shared 10,000 times overnight and 100,000 times in the first four days. And then the clickbait sites picked it up and George Takei shared it and the Today Show did a thing on it and Ashton Kutcher shared it and he did a piece on it. And it went on and on and on. And it was just really jarring because I was the one that was grieving and suddenly 10,000 people were coming to me with their own grief. And Facebook performed this incredible little miracle where anytime I had to comment, it just said comment as Benny or post as Benny. And it was like, ugh. And there was a beautiful transformative moment the day after where I didn't even know any of this had happened. And I woke up and it was just like thousands of notifications on Facebook. Like what is what? And he wasn't there. It was the first morning without hearing the little sighs, like the things that you're not aware you're used to hearing. When they're gone, man, it's like that silence is deafening. I could hear all the way down, like probably a quarter mile down the street to hear the trucks go by, but I couldn't hear him. And it was a really weird altered state. There were so many comments, I couldn't jump in and respond. And of course, as an independent artist, my reflex was, oh, God, I'm going to have to thank people. I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to respond to every single one of these just so everybody knows that they're important to me. And how am I going to come up with that energy? Anyway, couldn't do it because the comments were coming so fast I couldn't even keep up with them. They were just, just like the credits in a movie just scrolling by. Was that when you decided to publish it as a book? Oh, no, I was still in shock. Okay. But so many people said, oh, is this a book? I need to give this to my friends. But there was one comment where <laughs> the standard comment would be, OMG, and like 16 different crying emojis. And then they would tag like six or seven people's names and just not even explain it. So it's sort of like an ambush. And then they open this thing and then it would be like, oh, 
up? Why did you tell me? What did you, I'm on the bus. My, my mascara is running. I'm on my way to work. Why did you do this to me? Spoiler alert. Have some Kleenex nearby. Exactly. And then like six comments into this one thread, this guy goes, ugh, too much anthropomorphism for me. And man, that is not what you say to somebody who's grieving. And I was mad. I mean, I was mad, mad. And I was about ready to let that guy have it. And, and like, hey, George, this isn't your parade to piss on. Shut the up and go home. But anyway, that was the little miracle moment because as I was so angry and I've got my phone and I'm about ready to let this guy have it, comment as Benny. And I was like, ugh. And I had to pull it in. And then I shifted over to like, sorry you're having such a bad day, George. Hope tomorrow's better. And then I was like, no, that's not even it because he wouldn't be sarcastic. And then I realized that, no, the magic of Benny is that he would just be like, huh, guess this guy doesn't like dogs and move on to somebody else that does. And so I just let him go. I was like, this isn't worth doing anything. Well, good for you. Here's what you did. You tapped into people's feelings once again, just as you did when you were trying to work out the patronism. So empathy became what you shared, and as a result, it came back tenfold. I am grateful for you sharing today a little bit about the insight of your creative process, and I hope that folks look you up. I hope they go to YouTube and watch that Cashmere performance and read the Benny book. There's a reason that you have all the Austin Music Awards behind you and why January 27th is John Pointer Day. So whenever they listen to this, they can look forward to that day to send out their John Pointer Day cards to people. Thank you for being my guest today, John. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. I really appreciate it. I feel honored to be on your show. Your voice is like a pillow torn at the seams And the whispers all the secrets I think My heart's been trying to keep from me so Somewhere in that secret There's a little bit of you That tells me where to find it won't tell me what to do Now all that I know All that I know Is one by one Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot .fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty, your call.